and so we will start with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for this terrific book that we have the privilege of studying. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to be able to fully love you, that you would open our ears to be able to hear the wisdom that Lewis has in these letters about how we can avoid the schemes of the devil and how we can live in such a way that we are an annoyance to him. Lord, we pray you would bless our time tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who um, are just coming in, the music that we are listening to, a couple of people got it uh, already, it is uh, the work Finlandia uh, by John Sibelius. Uh, does anybody know what nation he is from? <laughs> Yeah, it actually is Finland. It's not a trick. Um, But that is one of the great masterpieces of Finnish music. Uh, It also is well known in many Christian denominations, not so much in the Anglican Church, uh, because it's not in our hymnal, uh, but uh, the hymn, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender, uh, goes to the tune of Finlandia. And that hymn is particularly... Uh, touching to people who know the story of Jim Elliott, the missionary, uh, because right before he and his friends went out on what would be their last journey, they gathered together and sang that hymn in the jungle. But we are listening to it because it is Finlandia, not because it's the hymn. And Lewis was a huge fan of Norse myth. And a lot of his ideas about beauty um, came out of his understanding of Norse myth. So one of the things that we will see as we get further into Screwtape is that Screwtape does not like myth. He does not like for anyone to read myth. So uh, we're not going to hit that tonight, but it will be something for us to look forward to. So tonight... uh, Again, we're focusing on standing against the devil's schemes. We are looking at the wisdom that Lewis has put into these letters about what it means to live Christianly, particularly in a culture that is not necessarily supportive of that. So we'll start with uh, reading our theme verse, which is all about the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's so much richness in this that we could really spend every week just talking about this verse. But as we've talked about before, I really want you to notice how proactive this verse is. All of these verbs are very active. And I also want you to notice, since we're going to be talking about prayer tonight, how much of that verse is woven around the idea of prayer as being one of the most important things that you can do in protecting yourself against the schemes of the devil, but also in boldly standing for the truth. So as we go on, just a reminder, the reason I think this book is so important is it reminds us we are in a battle. We are all too easily lulled into the idea we're not in a battle. Our culture tells us we're not in a battle. We just need to be inclusive of everything and it will all be fine. Um, Then this whole idea of thinking Christianly, I think for many of us, at least for me, it is really easy to get lazy and not think for yourself and just read what somebody else has said about something or listen to what somebody else said about something on the news (laughs) rather than actually reading and thinking and discussing. And thinking Christianly is hugely important. It's part of the greatest commandment. And the Christian worldview is a concomitant to that. And then lessons on the psychology of temptation, uh, which are fairly obvious in the letters, but perhaps what is less obvious and we're going to keep hammering on is habits. Habits, and I don't know why no one has written a book on this, or at least I haven't found it yet. (coughs) Habits are the subtext that go all the way through this book. And so learning to cultivate those habits is really, really important. And the result of those habits, if we apply them, is to live a life that is boldly Christian. So this letter 13 excerpt about habits I love, let him, that is the patient that uh, Screwtape is trying to get uh, Wormwood to work on, let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. And we've talked about this before, but this is going to come up over and over again, that the devil wants to encourage states of feeling about things, but that these feelings never issue into any kind of action. They just get us to think that we've done something because we thought about it or felt a certain way about it. So to go quickly through the habits we've looked at already, connecting thinking and doing, seeing if the guiding principles of your life actually match with your worldview and your life and your habits. This is kind of like that financial idea of you can have financial goals, but then when you go and look in your checkbook register and your bank statement, you see whether there's congruity or not. I was trying to be on the other <laughs> side. It's all good. So the second thing is to focus on universal issues. Consider the true, the good, and the beautiful instead of just what's coming at you. And we live in the culture that has more coming at it than any culture in the history of the world. So again, you have to be proactive about this to set your mind on things above. <laughs> 
spend time in beautiful places reading things that make you think and considering their implications. This is so important, and we are particularly blessed that we live somewhere that is just full of beautiful places, which is why there's so many people coming to visit here. Uh, but there are a lot of places in our country where you have to really struggle or go some distance to find somewhere that is beautiful. So we are very blessed with that. Explore the real sciences and the wonder of the earth and the heavens. I want to recommend again John Lennox. John Lennox is on YouTube. Uh, he's a professor at Oxford. He's very involved in the Veritas Forum. He was a student of C.S. Lewis's. He is brilliant. He has several doctorates. He's written this great book called God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? And I would commend that to you. And then love God with your mind. Thinking Christianly is part of what it means to love God. Second letter. Screwtape gave Wormwood the advice of making sure that the patient's conversion is just sort of theoretical, that he doesn't ever actually really embrace the Christian faith wholeheartedly <laughs> and jump in with both feet and then look to be transformed by Christ. Uh, so he wants to keep that away. So that is what we should strive for if we want to be annoying <clears throat> to the devil. Uh, we should strive to be fully committed to Christ and to be transformed. Another thing that we are not very good at in our culture and in the American church is understanding our relationship to the church in scripture and history, the church triumphant, the church militant, the communion of saints. We're getting ready toward All Saints Day, November 1st. It's a great time to think about that. We are not alone in this battle. And then viewing others through the lens of Christ rather than through the lens of culture or self-interest. There's that old adage that says, love people, use things. And, of course, the flip of it is, use people, love things, which is pretty much where our culture is. But we need to develop that Christ-like lens of looking on the heart and not the exterior. Another thing that's so important is to focus on the ultimate joy of following Christ. Sometimes we get focused in the day-to-day -day when it's hard, and we start being like that person we were talking about when you have the two people that are building the cathedral, and one, when asked what he's doing, says, I'm building a cathedral, and the other one says, I just come out here and hammer on rocks all day. And you know, they're doing exactly the same thing, but their mental attitude and what they choose to set their minds on is what's so important. And that again, constantly keep at the front of your mind and heart a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy in calling a sinner like you to be in relationship with him. This, again, is so important. Uh, if you were here in church on Sunday, this is part of what I was preaching about, this whole entitlement idea that has pervaded so much of our thinking. And we forget that we are debtors to Christ's grace. So, and then from last week's letter, keep your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit. Don't let Satan get a foothold. It is amazing how many Christians let roots of bitterness get into their relationships and destroy their joy and their witness. So that is so important. Another is cultivate the integration of your spiritual life and your outward behavior. And we talked about 
the summation verse from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most important teaching, where he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the man who built his house on the rock. And the other part of that, of course, is every man who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the man who built his house on the sand. And I would like to suggest that we tend to mishear that verse. We hear it, everyone who hears these words of mine will be like the person who built his house on the rock. But what we forget is Jesus says both heard. Both of them heard. They were both in church Sunday listening to the sermon. But some acted, some just heard and walked away. And then... Practice nurturing and practical prayer for others. Believe the best. Avoid being overly sensitive. There's a real problem within particular Bible Belt Christianity where we tend to pray that God would remove all of the faults that we see in other people. (laughs) Lord, she is such a gossip. She's so mean. Lord, she needs you, bless her heart. That is not biblical intercession. If if you need some help with biblical intercession, look at the book of Ephesians. It is full of really (laughs) wonderful ways to pray for people. Another thing, be gracious in all circumstances and speak life. Uh, There's so much in scripture about this, about speaking life. And all too often, it is easy for us as Christians to fall into legalism and to speak death to people, um, to speak judgment, to speak condemnation. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. But as I've said in many contexts, unfortunately, in most man-on-the-street interviews, when people are asked, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word Christian, the answer is judgmental. Well, that is not gladdening the heart of Jesus. So that is, that is something we as the church can work on. And then cultivate spiritual humility and be glad for other spiritual growth. It is not a contest. All too often, we fall into thinking that it is a contest. But we all have different gifts, and we should rejoice when someone excels in some spiritual area, even if it's one that we're not good at. Because Jesus said that's the way he's made the body. So that was a very quick overview. And I just want to say again, I am not trying to heap a heavy load on your back uh, with all of these habits because it is perhaps a little bit overwhelming that we're only through three letters and we've already got all those things (laughs) to cultivate. Um, But what I would suggest is that the scripture is full of commands and habits And so it is part of the joy of a life dedicated to Christ to see which ones of those he puts on your heart to lead you into working on. Please don't try to do all of those. Um, You will go crazy. But pray through them. And as we walk through this book, we will see that so many of these habits, once we get through a few more letters, we're going to start seeing they're coming around again uh, in different guises. So, letter four. Letter four is one of the more famous letters in the screw tape letters. Uh, letter four is all about prayer. And part of the reason this is so important is that 
we as the church have bought the lie that Satan has been peddling. And that lie is that, oh, prayer doesn't really matter. If we pray for a little while, it's okay. If I pray when I'm at church, that's good. I'm good. Thank you. I did my prayer. Um, That is not the attitude toward prayer that you see in Scripture or in Christ's life or in the lives of any of the saints. Prayer is one of the most vital things that a Christian can do. It should be like breathing. And it is very important in spiritual warfare. And there will be more about that as we get more deeply into this book. But this letter is full of advice to Wormwood about how to get the patient either to not pray or to make his prayers absolutely ineffectual. And y'all may all have mastered this, but uh, I think, at least for me, there is a lot to learn here. So I'm going to read this and just note things that stick out to you uh, as we go through it. My dear Wormwood, the amateurish suggestions in your last letter warn me that it is high time for me to write to you fully on the painful subject of prayer. You might have spared the comment that my advice about his prayers for his mother proved singularly unfortunate. That is not the sort of thing that a nephew should write to his uncle, nor a junior tempter to the undersecretary of a department. It also reveals an unpleasant desire to shift responsibility. You must learn to pay for your own blunders. The best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult, recently reconverted to the enemy's party, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember, or to think he remembers, the (laughs) parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. That is exactly the sort of prayer we want. And since it bears superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence, as practiced by those who are very far advanced of the enemy's service, clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals, and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. We'll come back to that one. If this fails, you must fall back on subtler misdirection of his intention. Whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, we are defeated. But there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him toward themselves. 
keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings. Oh, look, there's that word again. <laughs> feelings there by the action of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that this is what they are doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling. And never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. But of course the enemy will not meantime be idle. Wherever there is prayer, there is danger of his own immediate action. He is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours as pure spirits. And to human animals on their knees, he pours out self-knowledge in a quite shameless fashion. But even if he defeats your first attempt at misdirection, we have a subtler weapon. The humans do not start from that direct perception of him, which we unhappily cannot avoid. They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare, which makes the background of permanent pain to our lives. If you look into your patient's mind when he is praying, you will find, you will not find that. If you examine the object to which he is attending, you will find that it is a composite object containing many quite ridiculous ingredients. There will be images derived from pictures of the enemy as he appeared during that discreditable episode known as the Incarnation. There will be vaguer, perhaps quite savage, and puerile images associated with the other two persons. There will even be some of his own reverence and of bodily sensations accompanying it objectified and attributed to the object revered. I have known cases where what the patient called his god was actually located up and to the left at the corner of the bedroom ceiling, or inside his own head, or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object, you must keep him praying to it, the thing that he has made, not to the person who has made him. You may even encourage him to attach great importance to the correction and improvement of his composite object, and to keeping it steadily before his imagination during the whole prayer. For if he ever comes to make the distinction, if ever he consciously directs his prayers not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be, our situation is, for the moment, desperate. Once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, or if retained, retained with a full recognition of their merely subjective nature, and the man trusts himself to the completely real, external, invisible presence, there with him in the room, and never knowable by him as he is known by it, why, then it is that the incalculable may occur. In avoiding this situation, this real nakedness of the soul in prayer, you will be helped by the fact that the humans themselves do not desire it as much as they suppose. There's such a thing as getting more than they bargained for. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So you will see there is a lot 
in here, and you will see that there's a lot, again, about this feeling and action thing. And I want to just talk about two little bits before we get into the habits. And the first one of those things is that uh, up here, this line right at the top, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. I think this is hugely important. Part of the reason that we are confused about this is that we have the image from Hollywood of Satan as a little a little miniature devil, complete with tail and horns and pitchfork, on our shoulder whispering naughty things into our ear. Now, I'm not saying Satan will not sometimes put evil thoughts into your head, but the important thing is to remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, what was his invariable response to each thing that Satan said? It is written. Yes, it is written. So he came back with scripture, and was Jesus reading off of a scroll when he did that? No. So what had he done? Yes, he had studied and memorized the scriptures so that when the assault came, there was something in his head and his soul with which to respond. And I want you to think about, uh, this is probably a little bit of a strange analogy, but hang in there with me. Imagine that you are at one of these stores that are these big box stores, and they have a little showroom in the front, and then the back is these just endless rows of shelves that go all the way to the ceiling, and there's this guy driving sort of a golf cart with a little bucket on it where he goes back and forth up and down the aisles trying to find whatever the item number is of what you ordered out in the front. I think that's a little bit the way our minds work when they encounter temptation. And imagine if the little guy is going down the aisle and he's looking for something to respond to this particular item number and the shelf is empty. That, I think, is all too often what happens to us because Satan has succeeded in keeping out of our minds the things that should be there because part of being equipped to battle with Satan is to have put into your head those things that Christ tells us to put into our heads so that we are equipped for this battle. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit is very important in all of this. It's not just our action. But we are told over and over and over again that we are to be deeply involved with the Word of God. The passage we've been studying in the Wednesday night service for the past few weeks, John 17, says, I think four times just in that one chapter, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. So one of the devil's biggest schemes is to keep you away from the word of God. It is remarkable if you are used to having particular times to study scripture how very often distractions arise right at that moment. Or if you were coming to a class like this, or you're going to Jeff's Bible study, or whatever it might be, Satan does not want the Word of God to get into your heart. 
Um, the other thing that is so important here is this next paragraph. This is what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. This idea that if you can manufacture the feeling, then somehow you can check off whatever the issue was. And what Lewis is saying here is that we fall prey to our own minds and thinking about that. And we, and this happens, I think, very often, and one of the examples he uses is in forgiveness. Scripture says in 1 John 1 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But a lot of times, we don't want to take him at his word and we may have prayed and confessed genuinely, but we don't feel forgiven. And so we go back and do it over again. And then we go back and do it over again. And what Satan wants us to do is just keep focused on that situation and those feelings rather than taking God's word for what it says. So I could go on and on about that, but I will spare you. So um, some habits out of this letter. The first one, pray with serious, focused attention. Now, let me just say, any prayer is better than no prayer, okay? Any prayer is better than no prayer. But within that, uh, there are lots of different ways of praying, some of which are far better than others, prayers that will be of more... um, spiritual benefit that will help you to grow in your walk with Christ. And John 15, I don't know if you've spent much time in the Gospel of John and these chapters that are Jesus' discourse before he goes to the cross, um, but I would commend those chapters to you. But this particular one is very familiar. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And even though this is so familiar, I think this is another one of those verses that is widely misunderstood. And part of it is because we don't really understand what the word abide means. There's an old Victorian hymn, Abide With Me, uh, which is a beautiful hymn. But we don't, we don't really think about what abide means. It's not a word that we use in our normal, everyday language. But what it really means is to have a deep sense of rootedness and belonging and see somewhere as your home. So abiding for people that are really proud of being Charlestonians It's a little bit like that, that their identity is all (coughs) caught up in that. And our identity is to be all caught up in Jesus, that that is where our identity is rooted, where our joy is when we come back. It is where we find our rest and our fulfillment and our truest selves. And what, what he's saying here is that when we do that, when we abide in him, then it is that we are able to bear much fruit. And the result of that is that we can ask whatever we wish. Because when we are abiding in him, if we, and we're not going to do that in this life and get there 100%, but were we able to get there 100%, whatever we asked would be perfectly in accord 
with God's will for us. And there would be joy <laughs> and fruitfulness and all of that. And the more that we abide, the more like that we will be. We will be able to bear good fruit. And so part of that serious focused attention is all about where are we abiding? Because if you are abiding, if your identity is all in something else, it is going to be very hard for you to pray in a focused way. Because when you try to pray, your mind is going to constantly flip back to whatever that other thing is. It's just like Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. And all of us battle with this. We're all going to battle with this while we are sinners in this world. But the fact of the matter is that when we ask for God's help to pray with serious focused attention, when we ask for God's help to abide with him, he loves to answer that kind of prayer. That is like asking for wisdom. That is the kind of prayer that gladdens God's heart. The second thing is to pray expectantly and not by rote. And I just want to look at a couple of passages here. The first of these is from Hebrews 11. Hebrews 10 and 11, again, if you haven't read those in a while and you want a little encouragement, just go read those two chapters. They are wonderful. <laughs> and just this one little verse, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now that may seem really obvious, but all too often we can start to pray without really thinking about that we're drawing into the presence of someone who is real. Someone who is real, who has a personality, who loves us, who wants to be in relationship with us, and who can speak to us. All too often we think that we're the only ones that speak in prayer. And so this idea of being expected is so important. And I'm going to get to the by rote in a minute if I skip it. Remind me to come back to it. Secondly, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And what this means is that sometimes you don't know what to pray for. You may be at the end of your resources, which spiritually sometimes is actually a good place to be if you've exhausted all of your own trying to fix things, uh, being utterly dependent on God. But leaning into prayer and asking for God's help even on how to pray is a really good thing because it is a reminder that when you enter into prayer, you are in a relationship. You are not in a void. And one of the words that Lewis uses to talk about this is the, the sense of the numinous. And that's not a word that most of us use, but he has this great little explanation that's from the problem of pain that I think will help. So let me just read this to you. Suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. But if you were told there is a ghost in the next room and believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous. And the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. 
With the uncanny, one has reached the fringes of the numinous. Now suppose that you were told simply there is a mighty spirit in the room and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitant and of prostration before it, an emotion which might be expressed in Shakespeare's words, under it my genius is rebuked. This feeling might be described as awe, and the object which excites it as the numinous. And I think this is sort of a lot to take in, but there, he really is getting at something there, because I think all too often when we think of the fear of God, we immediately go to being afraid, because that's what we associate fear with, like if the tiger were chasing after us. Or we might go to fear of something like a ghost that's sort of different. But Lewis captures this, I think, most beautifully in Narnia with Aslan, where he says, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good, with a capital G. And I think that that's a helpful metaphor. So when we come into the presence of God, we are to fear, but in the way that we are to fear Aslan. It's not being afraid that he's going to like strike us with a lightning bolt, although he could. Um, it is a fear that is an awe and a reverence and a respect for power and a deep love all sort of mixed up together. So this idea of praying expectantly is really important. It is all too often easy to pray not thinking that it's going to make any difference. And I'd like to suggest to you that it's sort of like that old uh, thing that you might have learned if you ever studied uh, self-management or time <laughs> management or those kinds of courses they make college freshmen take, uh, where they tell you the surest way to not hit a goal is to not set one. And sometimes that's the way we are with our prayer. We just think, well, I know I'm supposed to pray. This situation's hopeless. Nothing's going to happen. I'm going to say my little prayer and just move on. Well, that is not praying expectantly. And part of the problem is that we have decided what God needs to do. We have figured it out, and we're just waiting for him. And we may even do something like pray the story of the importunate widow who is praying and praying and praying and praying because she wants this. But the problem is we don't know what God wants to do most of the time. And so praying that God would open our hearts and our minds more fully to his presence and his wisdom is a really good way to pray expectantly and not by rote. Now, when I say don't pray by rote, that does not mean that things like the Lord's Prayer and the Book of Common Prayer are useless. Um, they can be useless if you're just da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Kind of like that example I used a few weeks ago when the guy was doing the responses in evening prayer. He's like, and make thy chosen people <laughs> joyful. That is not prayer. That is just recitation. So pray expectantly. The third thing... How did I do that? I guess I can't count. <laughs> Well, this is actually the third thing, not the fourth thing. Since we have two fives. Well, three was the most important. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's right. It's in the realm of the numinous. Yes. So consider your setting and posture, avoiding distractions, embrace beauty, follow biblical examples. So again, you can pray anywhere. You can pray in traffic. You can pray when you're walking down the street. You can pray while you're eating a meal. And all prayer is better than no prayer. But when you're setting aside a time for concentrated prayer, the setting really makes a difference. And being somewhere where you are not distracted is really, really important. We live in a culture that can't stand not being distracted. Uh, People literally start twitching when there's silence. So trying to find somewhere where there's no distraction is really important. Jesus is a great example of this. When Jesus went out for long periods of prayer, Jesus prayed a lot. It's interesting to look in the Gospels and see all of his prayers. But when he went out for long periods of prayers, he went out. He went out to a place that was desolate. And very often those places were beautiful. Very often they were on a mountain or by the sea or something like that. But they were away from distractions. Another thing that can be really helpful is to be somewhere where you are surrounded by beauty. If you are somewhere where you are surrounded by beauty, it is a reminder of God's grandeur, of his power, of the fact that the the one to whom you are praying is the one who made all of what you are seeing. Uh, One of the things that I've started doing uh, as a result of, I guess, two classes ago, some of what we were reading in Tolkien and Lewis, is I've started doing my first prayer time each day outside, which doesn't seem like it would be that much of a difference, but I will tell you it has been transformative. Being outside, feeling the breeze, hearing the birds, seeing whether it's raining or the sun is shining, the leaves on the trees, you know, all of those kinds of things. Uh, There's something about that that puts you back into the right order because we forget that we are the creatures, not the creator. And so when we get put back in our creaturely role, that puts us back in right order. And that, that is something that can be very helpful. Another thing is to follow biblical examples. If you look in the Bible when people are praying, what kind of postures do you find them in? Prostrate as the ground. Okay, sometimes they are prostrate on the ground. All right, good. Where else do you find them? What other postures? Standing up, holding their hands up. Yep. What else do you find? Kneeling. Kneeling. Okay, good. What else do you find? Sitting. Sitting, yes. So you find all of those. And I don't want to say at all that any one of those is right and all the others are wrong. Um, But what I would suggest to you, if you are always in the same posture when you pray, Um, which I think for most of us when we're at home, our posture probably is sitting in a chair somewhere. Um, I would suggest to you that you try some other things. I don't want you to do anything dangerous, particularly if you're old, uh, which applies to me. I was a little nervous about getting down on my knees in the church service tonight. But um, there is something about posture that really matters. And I will tell you that if you have never prayed prostrate on the floor, I would commend that to you. It is very hard to be full of yourself when you are lying flat on your face on the floor. 
And if you've ever been to an ordination service uh, for the diaconate or the priesthood in our tradition, our tradition is that the postulant, the person being ordained, lies on the floor. And when I was ordained, I was lying on the floor for a while. One of my friend's children leaned over to my friend and says, like, is he dead? <laughs> so you don't really want that to happen, but it is, it is a very helpful thing to do, uh, and particularly in certain circumstances. If you are really pleading with the Lord about something, um, being prostrate is a, is a physical way of saying is, I am at the end of my resources. I am utterly dependent on you. And that can be very helpful for us because we tend to be prideful people. Another thing, particularly for those of us who are the frozen uh, Anglican Episcopalians, um, standing up with our hands in the air um, can be a very good way of praying. Uh, that can be very beneficial, particularly if you are praying um, and worshiping at the same time. Uh, one of the great things that there is... Uh, now, uh, a benefit of technology, and again, this is a little out there, so you don't have to do this, but uh, something that you may find helpful is to find on YouTube a favorite hymn or worship song and find the biggest screen in your house so that you can get it on and turn the volume all the way up and stand and lift your hands and sing along with it. Uh, that can be a very freeing thing. If you really want to be vulnerable, invite somebody to do that with you. Um, another thing that can be really good to do is to remember that there's a reason that we have kneelers in the church. Um, even though there are times that we're instructed to kneel, a lot of people don't because it's just easier to sit. But kneeling, again, is a, it's sort of like being prostrate on the floor, that it is a reminder of who you are. It is a reminder that you are bowing before Jesus, and he tells us one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and so this is good practice for that moment. And in our tradition, and probably if you were confirmed uh, in this church, you know this, but in our tradition, you kneel to pray, particularly for penitential and intercessory prayer. You stand for prayer that is praising and worshiping prayer, and you sit for instruction. Um, so that, that is just something to keep in the back of your mind. But posture matters. All right, I gotta hurry up here. All right, so focus on Christ and his kingdom rather than only yourself and your feelings. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And this is a reminder that God is more interested in giving you things that are good for you than you are able to ask for those things. Sometimes we think it's all on us, but the thing that's so important is to focus on Christ and his kingdom and that he is our, God is our loving Father who desires to give us things that are good for us, that will help us to accomplish his will for us. And so we need to lean into that. So often we get stuck on our feelings, and we refuse to accept the plain meaning of what Scripture teaches us. Um, Jesus is a great example 
of this kind of prayer. You can only imagine what Jesus' feelings must have been like after Judas's betrayal, um, when he's gone out from the Last Supper and Jesus has gone to Gethsemane and knows that it's only a matter of time before they come to take him away, to kill him, and those in whom he's invested his life day after day for three years are all going to abandon him. And listen to this passage. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down. Oh, Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Now, we're so used to hearing that that we don't think that he could possibly have said anything else. But just imagine if Jesus had spent the whole time saying, this is not what I signed up for. All of these people that you gave me have rejected me. I'm over this. I don't want to do this. I'm sick and tired of all this. Get me out of here. You know? Now, I don't know about you, but that's what my prayers sound like sometimes when I'm in a place I don't want to be. But what Jesus does is he admits, he admits that he wishes that the cup might be removed. But he very quickly says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I don't think any of us are ever going to be in circumstances quite that dire, but it is, it is a good reminder to us, even though God cares about everything that's on our hearts, we don't want to get trapped there. Part of the problem is that we take the truth that God cares about everything that's on our hearts and we don't hold it in tension with the truth that God calls us to trust him. And so we need to hold on to both those things. And this prayer is a beautiful example of that. And then lastly, be confident that God's presence is with you, invisible and yet completely real. This is something that Lewis plays with a lot in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, where as the children get older, they have more and more difficulty seeing Aslan. <laughs> Lucy is almost always able to see him because she is the one who has the childlike faith. But it is a reminder that even when we can't see him, he is real and he is there with us. And again, this is like that whole idea about praying expectantly because you are not alone when you are praying. And Hebrews does such a beautiful job of saying this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then as we see in James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was marked by an unbelievably beautiful and potent symbol 
that all too often we just miss. Because remember, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened at the temple? The curtain tore in two. And that curtain from top to bottom, that curtain was what shielded the Holy of Holies, God's presence, so that none of the people could ever enter into God's presence. And the only person that went behind the curtain was the high priest on the Day of Atonement with a rope around his ankle. So if something happened to him in there, they could yank him back out without having to go in there. And that was because the presence of God and God's holiness was such that any mortal man that went in there before Jesus' death on the cross would have been unable to continue to live. Even Moses had to come with a veil over his face after he had been near God's presence. So the thing that is so remarkable is that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil, that curtain was torn in two, and there was a, this, that's what this is talking about, that the new and living way was opened to us through the curtain where we have full access to God because of Jesus' blood. And that should give us confidence. And to not have confidence in that is not to be humble or to think that um, you have a good understanding of your sin. It is to doubt the efficacy of Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood on the cross paved that new and living way, opened it in a way that we could never have done on our own. And the wonder of grace and salvation is that sinners like us, creatures marred by sin, can be in direct contact and relationship with the holy God who made us. It is absolutely the most incredible thing. So being confident, is not about being confident because we're good. Being confident is about being confident because of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And then again, this last little quotation. Our cause is never in more, more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. So with that, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift and privilege of prayer. Lord, we confess that we all too often forget the wonder of your grace and that new and living way that you've opened through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the curtain, into your presence. Lord, help us not to dilly and dally around with prayer as if it's something that doesn't really matter, but help us to remember that it is our means of coming into deep relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to be aware that the devil wants to keep your word and your promises out of our hearts and minds, and that we would annoy him by filling our hearts and minds with your word, with your truth. Lord, I pray that you would bless each one of us as we seek after you, that you would bless each one of us in our prayer times and this week to come, and that you would draw us nearer and closer to your heart. Lord, we pray your blessing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.